Welcome to the Describe Your World podcast, episode nine. Um, I'm pretty excited about today. I'm here with my guest, Ethan, and uh, we've known each other for a long time. It's been, I mean, we've talked a little bit over the course of the past 10 years, but haven't really stayed, quote unquote, in touch. Um, but there are a lot of cool things to talk about today. So how are you feeling, man? Oh, I'm feeling good. I just started a new job and ready to you know get that going. Uh, I've spent my first week as a middle school teacher this week. It was an experience for sure. Yeah. Um. So we can just dive right in uh, with your, your middle school teaching job if you want. How's that kind of what's that like for you? Is there anything you weren't expecting? Um. It's kind of pretty much how I expected it. Uh, I'm still learning like the procedures and when to do certain things. Um, I was a little worried about being around children all day because like I, I haven't been around children in a while. And I was like, it's going to be odd at first, but it was, I fell right in. They would come up to me and tell me stories and not everything, all the things they liked and what they've been up to. And I'm just like, okay, cool. And like, I was surprised they actually listened to me, but I guess that's, that's the, uh, perk of being an adult <laughs> yeah it's i mean you you're definitely you definitely have a position of authority when it comes to working with kids but at the same time you don't know if you're going to get that experience where they respect and acknowledge that or if they're going to like see you as a big kid and just try to you know make mm -hmm. fun out of it recently so far it seems like they're pretty respectful they there's definitely some students that want to act out and but you always have a couple but for the most part, like, they're pretty respectful. I haven't seen any major issues, so I think it'll be all right. Fingers crossed. And we'll definitely Fingers get into crossed. some of the the intricacies of sort of how you got there and, and how that came mm -hmm. to be and um, how that was sort of part of your goal originally. But I do want to get started at the beginning. So I'm going to let you sort of take the reins when it comes to early life stuff um, and just sort of talk about some of the more impactful experiences you had uh, when you were young. And if there's anything, any significant people, any significant experiences, feel free to elaborate on anything you'd like. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll just kind of ask questions as we go and, and bump off of some of that, too. All right. Um, well, uh, I was born in 94. Nothing spectacular about that. Uh, the last year you can really be classified as a 90s kid, I think, you know. So growing up in the 90s was it was fun. I, I enjoyed the the television, the pop culture, everything that I could absorb as a kid. And like, I still look fondly back on that time, but once 2000 hit, um, my mom died when I was six. So it was like, it was a pretty big shock to the system. Um, I didn't really know how to handle emotions at that age. So I was kind of left to my own devices. Um, my grandparents took me in, me, my brother, and my sister, and they uh, they did what they could, but like they didn't really understand how to raise children. It had been so long since they had had children, and the world had changed. So they didn't know how to help me process through what I was going through. So I spent the first four years of my life completely isolated because my grandpa would absorb himself in his work after he got home from work. Um, my grandma would just clean the house and do anything she could to not have to stop. So she wouldn't cry. Um, my brother was off doing his thing and my sister was a teenager, you know, hanging out with friends, never at the house. So it was just me in a room 
by myself all day, every day with my own thoughts. And it was, it was an odd childhood. I'll say that. Yeah. What is the, what is the age gap for you and your sister? Uh, my sister is eight years older than me and my brother okay. is 12 years older than me. So okay. I was, you know, drastically different ages. You felt like an only child. Kinda. Yeah. A little yeah. bit. Um, yeah, that's the best way to put it. I always saw my brother as more of a father figure than anything. So, and my sister was just mean at the time, oh. but as I grew older, you know, we got closer, but you know, it wasn't her running me over with a go-kart or throwing high heels at me. It was something else. So. so what was, I mean, obviously losing a biological mother at that age is that's a really big change sort of mm -hmm. for someone to process, particularly someone who's developing and growing. So how did you feel that space or, or did you even recognize, you know, how impactful that was at the time? Uh, I didn't recognize it at all. Um, I, for years I had dreams that I was just going to walk into the kitchen and she would be sitting at the table. Uh, so it just, it didn't process that, you know, the loss was final. It just seemed like, Oh, well, this sucks. I'll, I'll get there eventually. Like she'll come back, but she never did. So, um, you know, that when that finally sinks in, you know, your world just loses a lot of that color that it had before. And you don't really know how to process everything going on around you. And you mentioned that, you know, your grandparents weren't, you know, hadn't had practice basically being parents for a long time. So it was a challenge for them to really be parental figures for you. But um, was there any normalcy to like early life and growing up? Could you remember anything that was that had structure and organization that was helpful for you? Um, not really like bedtimes and things like that. Normal things, but as far as like, uh, emotional normalcy or regulation or anything to that extent. No. Um, anytime anybody would get upset, they would just fly off the handle and, you know, either start yelling or throwing stuff or, you know, running off and crying and trying to pull guilt trips on people. So it was, it wasn't intentional on their parts, but like they were so blinded by what was going on that they were just more or less babysitters than anything else. If that makes sense. I know that it's something that I've experienced too, is even especially looking back is that when you're little, you're always looking for some type of figure or person to imitate. You know, you want to mm -hmm. learn from someone and, and figure out how to do things correctly. So really those adult figures are the ones who provide that uh, model. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, did you have someone that you sort of based things off of and kind of followed along? Oh, my brother, a, a thousand percent. He was, uh, he was my role model when I was younger. Um, like we had our problems and things happened, but he was the closest thing I had. Um, mm -hmm. after my parents got divorced a year before my mom died, uh, my dad kind of just went and did his own thing. He was doing drugs and partying all the time and didn't want to be a father. Uh, I remember there was this one time that he had told me he was coming to pick me up from school and we got out at 12 that day. And my grandmother was a teacher at the school. And so she didn't leave till three or so. And, uh, by three, I was still sitting in the hallway and my sister saw me and she went and called my dad and he was at the beach with his friends doing cocaine. <laughs> so 
Well, like I didn't have a father figure. So the closest thing I had was my brother. And over the years, my relationship with my father got better, but it was always, you know, incomplete. So you, you were just, you were looking for answers where in a place where there were no answers, you were just trying to piece it together on your own. Yeah. And that's probably why I have to have an answer for everything and a meaning for everything today. Like I'm always searching for that. Obviously we didn't spend a lot of time together. Fun fact. I don't know if you ever knew this, but you were the first person that I met from our group of students, you know, from the school. Um, I knew one student for like 20 years, but then everybody Mm -hmm. who was new, you were the first person because we met at a birthday party and being the introvert that I am, I of course didn't approach anyone. So you being the person that you are came and found me and was like, first (laughs) talking about music, like right away. Um, So it kind of worked out that way. Um, But I I, I was introverted too. What's that? I said, I was introverted too. I was, I was scared at that party. I remember that party. I was like, I don't know any of these people. Yeah. That guy doesn't yeah. look like he knows anybody. I'm going to go over there. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know. Music was a weird, weird, interesting and beneficial thing for our group because we had such, for context, you know, we were in a group mm-hmm. of people, the entire high school where we were in school was like 15 kids. So everything mm-hmm. from ninth grade through 12th grade was 15 to 20 kids. And that was it. That was all we had for the high school. One um, teacher. But music was the one thing that we talked about nonstop and bonded mm-hmm. and connected over. Yeah, a little bit of that music is cringy today to think back about, but <laughs> it was definitely uh, a major part of my school time and my home time. Um, mm-hmm. Like, it's not like the uh, being alone all the time stuff ended when I was like 10. It's just when I kind of like accepted it, really. So I would get home from school and I would start playing guitar and I wouldn't stop until I went to sleep every day. And I did that for five, six years. I started playing when I was 13, I think. And, you know, up until the day I graduated, that's what I did when I got home. I, I played guitar and mm-hmm. got yelled at because it was too loud. But <laughs> <laughs> Where did you, where'd you get your first guitar? You said 13. Uh, uh, I had begged for one for about a year and they kept telling me that I was going to uh, pick it up, play it for a couple of days, put it down, never touch it again. I was like, I'm not going to do that. That's, that's not me knowing I had done that with every sport I had played, every hobby I'd picked up. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And we were, uh, we were, I think it was at Dollywood. There was a music store there and we went in and we looked at guitars and I picked up one and I started trying to figure out how to play. And they were like, we're not getting you one. And we left. And I was like, well, that's terrible. Uh, and about two weeks later, my brother, uh, came home from Columbia. He was visiting my sister and he was just like, I bought you something. And he handed me this guitar. Um, it was a Fender. Wait, no, I'm wrong. Don't believe me. I am wrong. <laughs> we went to meet him down there. He was in the, uh, the military, uh, not military. He was a corrections officer and he was in the Academy for being a corrections officer. We met him down there that weekend. And he uh, wanted to go to the music store and we went and he found this Fender acoustic that was in a hard shell case for like $200 and he bought it for me. And that was my first guitar because he got tired of me sneaking around trying to play his. <laughs> he didn't want me to break it. So he bought me one. So what, um, what was the draw, the initial, just seeing it or did you already love music before you wanted a guitar? Uh, I had always 
had a fascination with music. Me and my brother really bonded over music. Anytime we got in the car, he was dancing and singing and being silly and playing music anywhere from, you know, fifties pop up until, you know, nineties rap, two thousands rap. Uh, so it was music was ever present in my life, you know, and I wanted to, when I started watching like MTV and, uh, VH1 and stuff like that. I wanted to be able to do what those guys were doing. Right. I would see them playing these solos or all this stuff. And I'd want like, I want to do that. So like, I'm sorry, it's storming here. No, that's okay. I don't, I don't know that it's picking up anything too significant, okay. but, um, do you remember your, do you, do you have a memory of the first time you saw a performance and you, something kind of clicked? Cause the reason I asked that is because I have a very specific, very clear, vivid memory of, mm -hmm. Um, I think it might've been 2004, 2005. I was watching TV. Don't remember what show it was on, but I remember Bon Jovi performing live on the show, some kind of talk show. And they, uh, I can't remember uh, the guitar player's name. Might've be, I can't remember the guitar player's name, but he had a, he had like an SG, like a double head SG mm -hmm. and they were playing. And I was like, I fell in love with it. And it was, it's very vivid in my mind what that was like. And that's what made me want to learn music and play music. So. Uh, it was watching Eric Clapton play live on uh, a DVD my brother had. And uh, it was um, Eric Clapton's Crossroads Guitar Festival 2003 or 2004. And uh, it was, I think it was when they were doing cocaine mm -hmm. uh, to start like the DVD off. And like, as mm -hmm. soon as I saw that and I saw the solo and the like, all the different people on stage. I'm like, I want to do that. Like, I want to be up there in front of people doing that, you know, playing music, expressing myself to all these people that I don't have to have a one-on-one -on -one connection with. Right. Mm -hmm. Just experiencing humanity in a musical setting. And, uh, I just wanted to learn how to play. So I started sneaking around playing my brother's guitar. And from there I was hooked. Yeah, it's kind of what we said earlier. You were searching for answers, and then all of a sudden, there was an answer there that kind of made sense. And you can mm -hmm. resonate with people, communicate with people, touch people in a way. And all that's required is a certain skill set and time and work. And I mean, that's it makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of what some of the power that comes with music and the way it works. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know emotional recognition and. Um, what was the term I used? I don't remember, but, um, I never learned how to like control my emotions and express my emotions properly. So I would find that I could find songs that had the emotions that I was looking for. And if I was feeling some way, I could be like, here, listen to this. Right. Mm -hmm. And whether they got the message or not, like it, to me, it was a way I could express myself and the way I felt inside. I could be like, here, this is me in a nutshell absorb it and figure it out because I don't know how to say it. Did you ever do the thing? Cause I, I certainly did this a lot where, you know, you had a song that you would associate with each person, each experience, each thing that was going on. Uh, never to where I would like have it where I could be like, this song re reminds me of this person. But anytime I would hear a song, it would be like, Oh, I remember this. And I would mm. have it tied that way, but it wasn't a way that I could like articulate. Mm. It was just a feeling, you know, when I heard the song, like I would get flooded with memories and sensations and not really be able to tell people how it connected, but I would just know it, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So I, I know that, I know that we met and spent time together. We went to a private school, uh, Christian school, Christian affiliation mm-hmm. for those that are listening. Um, did you go through all 12 years at the same place? Uh, I went there for like 15 years. Uh, my grandma taught there. So I started when I was like two going to preschool okay. and from preschool to, you know, uh, kindergarten and on up till I graduated. I was there every day. There's a funny term and I don't, I guess it's sort of a universal thing, um, that we kind of pick at, but you know, we call people a PK or a pastor's kid, but mm-hmm. I think for us, and especially where we're from in such a small place, um, that's sort of behind in, in a lot of ways, but you know, there are people whose parents are teachers because at private schools, a lot of the time, some of the teachers don't have, you know, license or certification. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just have connections and relationships to like the administrative folk at those schools. So you get kids who are going to the school whose parents are teaching at the school mm-hmm. and sometimes are taught by their parents multiple years. It's a really weird thing that happens. Um, so what what are your some of your memories and experiences when it comes to school itself? Uh, I did not like any part of my school experience there. Not a bit of it. Uh, I begged every year to go to public school because I wanted to be around different kids. The kids I was around, I just, I didn't get along with them. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go to public school because all my friends went to public school and they would have all these other friends that I didn't know. So I was like, well, this is awkward because I don't like meeting new people. (laughs) And these are all new people that I don't know. And then my grandparents would tell me that if I went to public school, that I would get picked on and bullied every day and I would never make any friends. So I had this fear of going into the public school system, Mm. even though I wanted to go. So they kind of like tried to keep me at the school because, you know, they wanted me in a Christian school, even if I didn't want to be there. And to the point that they would tell me that if I got kicked out or expelled, I wouldn't go to public school. I would go to military school. (laughs) That's where I would spend the rest of my life. So, uh, yeah, I hated every bit of it. Every single second. (laughs) You were as much as you were out of place, you know, outside of the education system, you were out of place in the education system, too. And it seems mm-hmm. like, again, like we said, going back to music, that's the one space where you just weren't out of place. You know, you were kind of locked in and, and everything made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was my escape, you know, that and film, television, stuff like that. Anything that was that I could experience emotions through somebody else vicariously. Mm-hmm. Um so like I vividly remember when I was five, uh, my parents had just gotten divorced and my brother was watching me while my mom was working and he uh, wanted to watch star Wars. He had told me that a new star Wars was coming out and I couldn't watch it till I'd seen all of the old movies. So he bought the box set uh, and we started with a new hope. And I vividly remember at five years old watching that and just falling in love with the fact that I could see myself in something else or feel emotions through something else. And I would Mm -hmm. watch, uh, movies and TV, anything I could get my hands on, but distinctly star Wars. I will watch that movie till the day I die. This is kind of, this is kind of out of place in the conversation, but I don't want to miss it or overlook Mm. it or forget about it. I want to get a quick, like one through nine ranking from you for star Wars, like all just, just the main okay. Skywalker story, but don't do okay. like rogue one and all that stuff. Okay. One through nine. 
uh, and are we going by quality, right? Like, or you can rank them however favorite? you want. So you could go personal favorites. You could okay. go definitively, objectively best. You could go however you want. Okay. Uh, number one, a new hope. Number two, Empire Strikes Back. Number three, Revenge of the Sith. Four, Return of the Jedi. Five, uh, Force Awakens. Six, The Last Jedi. Uh, yeah, The Last Jedi. Um, seven, Attack of the Clones. Eight, Phantom Menace. Nine, Rise of Skywalker. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. I, I didn't like Rise of Skywalker at all. It was terrible. It wasn't worth watching. My, I mean, there are definitely some places in there where I feel some similarity to you. Um, Rise of Skywalker was objectively just bad. You know, I, I 100% would put that at the bottom of any ranking or any list. Mm -hmm. um, I can't find very many redeeming qualities about it, which really sucks because it's the conclusion to the Skywalker saga. So if you're right. going to mess one of them up, don't mess that one up. <laughs> they had so much potential. It was... They could have done so much with the story. If they would have kept uh, Colin Trevorrow's original script, it would have worked so much better. But no, no. J.J. Abrams had to J.J. Abrams it. And <laughs> we got what we got. So I was a little surprised by you putting Phantom Menace so low, but there are a lot of people who don't love Phantom Menace. For me, the other one, Rise of Skywalker, would be at the very bottom, and mm -hmm. then Attack of the Clones would be next. That's That one I can't watch either. It's pretty bad for me. Oh, well, it's right there at the bottom, too. Um, I put Phantom Menace that low because I don't feel like the pod racing scene and the lightsaber fights save the rest of the movie. <laughs> the acting is bad. The storytelling is bad. Uh, it, it's just not... It, uh, compared to the rest of the uh, the filmography, it's not up to par. So mm -hmm. you just can't. I can't do it. I was happy to hear that you put Revenge of the Sith and um, Force Awakens fairly high in the list. I think Force Awakens for you was kind of in the middle, but that one yeah. is a personal favorite. But objectively speaking, as far as best, I definitely think it would be like top three, top four for me. Um, and people it, don't I used give to put Revenge of the Sith enough credit. Like that mm. one is just, I think, is just objectively a pretty good movie overall. It's a little packed. There's a lot going on in that movie. But it's not so bad that, you know, it takes you out of the movie. It just feels like it's a long movie. Mm. Um, they could have made it two movies, and I think they could have done it and told it better. But um, And to go back to what you said about Force Awakens, I originally have it or had it earlier, like number three. But I haven't seen it in a while, so mm. it's starting to slip from memory. But I remember <laughs> when it came out, it was like number two. Uh, it was a new hope and force awakens, then, uh, Reve uh, return of the Jedi, not return of the Jedi empire, mm. um, return as a kid, return of the Jedi was my favorite, but mm. I, I just, I see the flaws in it as I grow older. So it starts to drop down, but, oh, and surprising fact, empire used to be in the last place on my list. I hated that movie up until I was like 16. Yeah, And I guess it was because it was so different from A New Hope and I had such strong ties to A New Hope mm. that it was just like, oh, I don't like that one anymore. Um, well, Empire Empire really does some things that I think, because if you look at a lot of top 100 movies or best of all time lists, Empire is the one that usually gets pushed mm -hmm. in and usually gets some type of recognition. And I think it's because of the themes of the movie. They're, they're vastly different, but, mm -hmm. you know, it makes sense that you were 
and teenager whenever it changed for you because they're really adult themes you know it's darker yeah. it's more deep and complex it's got a lot of twists and turns um and i think that's why it, it gets such recognition as a, a mm -hmm. just a movie because it even if you take the sci-fi out it's still got a lot of really important stuff and i think that's exactly right like as i got to her I was 15, 16, 17. I started watching a, more, a lot more adult movies and watching them not for the stories, but for how they were made and like looking at the different craft elements and seeing how they put the story together. And so much, not so much the words being said or the story mm -hmm. being told, but how it was told. So I, I think that's why it really clicked with me around that age is because I started, I started to see it as a, you know, staple in filmmaking as opposed to, the second star Wars movie. <laughs> and I think that what are, what are some of the other pop culture things that were important? Cause star Wars is a big one, but I'm mm -hmm. sure there were some other shows, movies, characters. Uh, well, uh, one of my earliest memories, um, with my mom was watching Nick at night every night before we went to sleep. So, uh, to this day, I still love, uh, I love Lucy and I dream of Jeannie and all those old shows uh, and still watch them. Uh, the Adams family. So those were always a constant through. Um, and I guess I, I really fell into watching horror movies and fell in love with horror movies and things like that in my like preteens. Mm -hmm. And like, it still continues this day. I, I, I love them, but, um, I don't know. I like the scary elements, but the things that like, you didn't know what was lurking behind the corner and mm -hmm. you, you're going to find out, but you don't know right now. And I guess I, I like that tension because like I said earlier, I'm always looking for the meaning in something or what's causing this or, you know, what everything represents, how it all fits together. So I see these horror films and I'm just like, I see how they're building the tension and I like it. Whether the stories are any good or not, like the execution is always fantastic. Yeah, it's kind of strange because horror is my favorite genre, and I was an English and creative writing major, and something about the way that storytelling is managed and handled mm -hmm. in horror movies is really appealing for me. There are some tropes and some repetition and some things that people meme and make fun of, which I understand. Like, you got mm -hmm. the screaming person who does all of the wrong things and then dies. Like, I get it. But there's something cool about the storytelling and the way that they're pieced together the perspectives, the characters, and there are bad ones, but even the bad mm. ones, I still like to watch, you know, like they're funny, they're yeah. entertaining. Whereas when it comes to like adventure or romance or coming of age, if there's a bad one, I don't want to watch it. Like mm -hmm. I'll just quit watching it. Have you ever seen a uh, house of the devil? I have the Ty West. Yeah. The slow burn. Yeah. When they get to the scene in the, the graveyard, uh, where the guy walks up, knocks on the window. I was like, okay, I see what movie this is now. And it completely <laughs> changed it. I was like this, I don't know how I feel about it. And then we got to that section. It was just like, Oh, Oh, this isn't the movie I thought it was at all. It's like, okay, I'm on board. And it's those moments that I, I love, right. When mm -hmm. they, cause horror likes to trick you a lot. You know, mm -hmm. it's all about the, uh, the trick at the end, um, for a lot of them or how are they going to get away with this? Oh no, that doesn't work. And there's always things. Um, but that movie, it, it threw that twist to you near the middle and you're just like, Oh, Oh, this, it completely separates. Like, this is the movie that you thought it was, but it's not, this is the movie that it is. And now you're in for a ride. 
And I, I love that about horror. Um, and I, I try to do that in some of my writings. You know, I was an English major and a creative writing minor. So I'm always trying to find things that, you know, you get to the end and it's, it's not what it was or in the middle, I throw a hint. And if you catch the hint, then the second half of the story is completely different than what you thought it was just mm -hmm. by that one piece of information. So mm -hmm. I, I, I love that stuff. Yeah. Ty West, he's, we recently, uh, my wife and I watched, um, we watched X toward the beginning of the year and mm -hmm. then we watched Pearl recently. And, um, even though his style changes and he, he writes some different stories and does some different things, it's always the same. Like I'm going to give you an hour of buildup and an hour of world building. And I'm going to give you 20 minutes of just gore and slashing mm -hmm. and all of the craziness ensues. <laughs> yeah, it works. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> um, I'd like to get your, your, the first horror movie you remember watching. And then I'd like to get your favorite, like which one would you go back to over and over again? Okay. The first horror movie I remember watching uh, was The Ring for some reason. Um, I don't know why, but like that's the one that pops out at me was The Ring. Mm -hmm. And it terrified me as a child. I, I was always afraid that things were going to come out of the TV anyway. And then <laughs> somebody came out of the TV. And every time I watch that movie, I'm just like, she's going to crawl out of my TV any second. <laughs> but so uh, that was the first memory from a horror movie that I have. Um, my favorite horror movie. That is a tough one. I guess it's not even really a horror movie, but more of a suspense movie, a thriller of sorts. I, I, I really enjoy, um, the devil's rejects Rob okay. zombies film. Mm -hmm. I, I've always been fascinated with serial killers and stuff like that. Uh, I think I got that from my sister. She was, really big into that in the, her teen years and going still to this day, we still talk about it on a weekly basis. But, um, so the idea of a serial killer family trying to get away and whether or not they can do it, I've always loved that movie. And plus like, it's terrifyingly bad as far as you know, <laughs> actions, not necessarily filmmaking, but like the actions of the characters are just evil worse than anything you'll see in most horror films, but he's completely serious about it the whole time. And it's just mm -hmm. that the, how those actors that you've seen in all these other you know horror movies, and they've played these different characters, how they now are forever in my mind as, you know, Otis Driftwood and Captain Spaulding. And they, those characters just became, you know, more than the actors themselves. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you make any connections? Well, I guess they happened sort of later. So later in your development, cause you started watching as a teenager, preteen, but did you make any connections from like the horror themes to like real life and some of the things you were feeling? Um, not really. It's more of a, an escape for me. Um, mm -hmm. I never really connected it too much with my own life, but it was a way that I could for an hour and a half, try to get away from my own life mm -hmm. and, you know, if there's a, like I said, I, I was, I've been mostly emotionless most of my life. Uh, you, as you remember from high school, I was always pretty calm and deadpan and I didn't get upset very easily. My voice was always kind of monotone. Mm -hmm. Um, but when I'm watching movies, it's completely different. I always have a smile on my face and it's, I feel kind of stupid watching movies around people because you'll see somebody 
like do something and like my face reacts just like you see in like those old movies like oh my god and i'm just like, <laughs> nobody saw that okay i'm good <laughs> so I, my memory of you is is really i remember the one thing that pops into my mind is i remember you being extremely intelligent but in a really subtle way like you were always you seemed to be really good at things but no one was really talking about it you know mm-hmm. and i i mean i i guess for our situation it was kind of we were in a curriculum that was advanced in college prep and and we were all pretty smart or at least for the most part, pretty intelligent. Mm-hmm. But I just remember knowing that you knew what you were doing. Yeah. And it's because I, I've always sought out information, right. In my personal life, anything like I want to know everything that I can, mm-hmm. if, I might not master it, but I will know enough about it to bring it up and to tell people things that they don't know about it. Um, and as a kid, and so when everybody else was talking about cartoons, I was like, well, I watched a documentary about the Knights Templar last night. And they're like, okay, so <laughs> I don't know what to do with that information. So it was always me trying to find out things that other people didn't know so I could tell them about it. And whenever someone would be like, oh, I didn't know that, I'm like, oh, you do now. But at the same <laughs> time, I didn't want people to recognize me as smart that much. So I would purposefully not do as well as I could. So they Mm -hmm. would know that I was smart, but they wouldn't think that I was overly smart, I guess. And I I guess I didn't like the compliments that I would get. I've never liked compliments. So whenever people would be like, Oh, you're really good at that. I'd be like, all right, I have to do worse at that one. (laughs) I can't, I can't let them know. So it was always a, a weird internal struggle for me because like, I wanted to know everything, but I didn't want other people to know that I knew everything. So it was very weird to be a teenager. (laughs) And I guess still to this day, I don't like compliments and I still do things uh, in a way that other people won't recognize how I did them or try to do things subtly. So people just don't notice. Hmm. You just, you just want to be invisible. Kind of. Yeah. I've always Hmm. said one of my, uh, like a dream vacation for me would be to go to Japan, go to Tokyo, have somebody drop me off in a part of the city. I don't know where I'm at. I don't, they, nobody there speaks English and just let me out and let me wander. Hmm. Right. I just, I want to disappear in a foreign city and nobody would have to figure out, you know, where did he go? Like I'll pop back up eventually, but I just want to disappear <laughs> into the world and be invisible and just watch people. And I'm going to do it one day. I mean, it, it's, it sounds for me, see the part of that, that appeals to me is the challenge. I mean, just being dropped into a place that you don't know mm-hmm. and having to survive and, you know, get lodging and get food. But it sounds more like for you, it's, it's kind of like, Oh, I can't be noticed. Like no one's going to be paying attention. <laughs> They might look at me and then they're going to go right back to what they're doing. Mm. Um, And I just, yeah, I've always wanted that feeling of being able to disappear. Nobody Mm. knows where I am. Nobody knows who I am, where I'm at. And I'm just existing in a space. Well, obviously, since we we went to, I mean, I went to the same school for one year, but I was Mm -hmm. in the same curriculum for all of the years. Like I was in a Becca curriculum all the way through for 12 years, and I was in a Christian school for six years until it closed. So I'm curious, 
because obviously you don't have a religious affiliation, or at least I don't think you do right now, but you can no. elaborate. But I, where, where along the way did you kind of separate from it or, or recognize that you felt differently? Well, uh, all through school, I, I would always have questions about everything, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. And I would ask people that were supposed to be knowledgeable about the material and stuff like that. And they would tell me to not ask questions. And I cannot accept that answer. I just can't do it. If there, if it's there, then there's a way that we can find out what it is, right? Mm -hmm. Or what it means. There's someone out there who has done enough research into this thing to tell me what it means. And I couldn't find those answers. Um, and so I just kind of like, okay, well, these people don't know what they're talking about. And I kept trying to go to church and, you know, do what I'm supposed to do. I, I would describe. I would describe the school we went to as as close as you can get to a Christian nationalist school mm. without any sense of violence. Right. It's not like they were up in arms about to go shoot anybody over this stuff, but they were adamant about removing the separation between church and state. Um, and then I would ask about stuff like that. I was like, well, here it clearly says this and they'd be like well that's not what they meant so what did they mean not that I'm like yeah well then what was it now so i could never get answers on anything and then i graduated and i was in the real world and i could see things were not the way they told us they were you know everything was completely different all my grandparents would tell me that everybody's going to pick on you and be mean to you in the real world because they're not Christians. They're, be, they're, they're bad people and they're mean. I'm like, okay. Mm -hmm. And then I get out in the real world. It's just people that don't know what they're doing, trying to figure out what they're doing. And from there, I started doing research on my own and everywhere I turned, I was just like a religious explanation for this occurrence is the least likely to happen. So I just lost faith. And I, but I felt bad about losing faith, right? I mm -hmm. felt like I was, I was sinning. I was doing the wrong thing. So I kept going to church. I kept playing uh, on the praise team and being there every time the doors were open, leaving, you know, being there first, leaving last. And it got to the point where I started feeling worse about lying to them than about not participating. So I just quit going. And I haven't been back since, and except for the occasional times my grandpa's asked me to go with him. Mm -hmm. So, what do you um, do? You identify with any kind of affiliation? How, how do you? What do you call yourself? Uh, I like rec uh, I like to say that I'm an agnostic. I uh, I don't know if there's a God. I don't have mm -hmm. any evidence that there is, but I also don't have any evidence that there's not. So, mm -hmm. until someone can show me one way or the other, I choose to not participate. You really, you really put in the worst possible environment to be a Christian because you're a person who wants answers and information and like defined, you know, logical mm -hmm. things. And you were put in an environment where they were like, we don't want to give you any, or we don't want to worry about the answers. Like just stop, wa stop wanting them and you'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. And like, I can't do that. It is that fueled my depression as a kid, mm -hmm. wanting to know these things and being told that by asking these questions, I was fundamentally in the wrong. Mm -hmm. I was sinning because I was questioning God and it was, I just couldn't 
fathom living the rest of my life like that, feeling bad for wanting to know more. And, and that's this, something too that I, I feel like, you know, with traditional, um, traditional dogma, like Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist, mm-hmm. every, everything that's out there, there are so many of these different branches. And I'm not saying every church and every group of Christians are this way, but a lot of my experience was, you know, obey the rules and don't ask why, like mm-hmm. do this, but don't wonder why they're there. You know, don't dig deeper. Don't search, don't seek meaning, don't seek mm-hmm. answers. Just kind of acknowledge that they exist and then do it and you'll be fine. And it's like, once you get to a certain age, that kind of stops working, you know, Mm -hmm. at least for, at least for us, it sounds like it's like, I need more, I need answer, I need logic, I need everything to make sense and come together. And then I'll be on board and then we can work through it and and kind of define what's going on. Right. Um, I would believe anything if you can prove it to me, but mm -hmm. until you can prove it to me, it's a, it's a nice idea. Yeah. And like you can, I can entertain it for a while, but eventually I, I'll come to the point where it's not true. There's no way I can put faith in it. Like I don't have proof that it's true. Thus I'm not going to stake my life on it. I wonder if that comes up for you at all in other facets, like outside of religion, if you, you know, if you're seeking something concrete and then you can't have it, does that uh, kind of stump you in any way or give you any problems? Uh, like an example, what do you so, like, I guess in relationships, if you, if the people say define the relationship, mm-hmm. like you have a, a certain type of connection with someone, but it's very vague. It's very like, you know, nothing's defined, nothing. You don't have answers. You're just kind of there. Is that something that, you know, increases your depression or gives you problems or makes you less likely to pursue that person? Uh, Kind of. Yeah. Um, It's the the idea of not knowing something and not being able to readily find it out that mm-hmm. just turns me away from anything. So yeah. um, if, if it's not right there and I can see it or be able to figure it out, I, I, I just, it's too much trouble. I'm just not going to do mm-hmm. it. Um, so like, that's always been an issue for me and everything, right? If I can't find a reason why I should be doing something, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> you can't just tell me to go do something. I'm going to ask why, and it's going to, you know, it's going to, affect whether or not I do it. And same thing. Like if somebody tells me, you know, this is correct, I'm not going to believe it until I find out proof. But that has the alternative effect of my mind telling me that all these other things are true and that making me really sad because I don't have the information to know (laughs) if I'm wrong. So immediately in my mind, I'm like, I'm right. And all of this is going the way I think it's going. And then it's Mm -hmm. a spiral of depression from there. I I mentioned this in a a past episode of the podcast, but we live in this sort of selfie generation or selfie era, which I, I, that's my nickname for it. But really it's Mm -hmm. more like you're an individual. You're very important. Everything you think and feel is correct. And in some ways it really backfires on us because Mm -hmm. if we happen to not be correct, then you're just going to be living with false information. Yeah. And that never leads anywhere good. Um, My problem with society and you know stuff today is that everybody is seeking the attention of someone else right Mm -hmm. um i've never wanted to really do that like i've always wanted the acceptance of the people around me but i've never felt the need for people across the country to recognize me as this fantastic thing right and i've struggled enough with my own self-image being just self-contained here right 
I couldn't imagine having people across the world tell me that I was bad at something. I'd lose my shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just feel like people put too much stock in what the thoughts of others that they're never going to meet. Like the world is too massive for you to care about what everybody thinks. Right. You've got the people that matter to you. And if they don't matter to you, then why does what they say matter to you? Mm-hmm. Right. If you wouldn't, you know, sacrifice part of yourself for this person, then why did, why does it matter what they say about you? Right. If you're mm-hmm. not hurting anybody, then what's the point? Right. So like, why care what they have to say about you? Their words don't define who you are. And today it just seems like everybody is, Oh, well, they said this about me. Like, do you care what they think to begin with? And if you do, why? And two, does it affect how you live your life going forward? Right. So like, I get people wanting to be accepted and I'm all for it. Like I will be as inclusive as I can be to make people comfortable. But it, there comes a point when, you know, you have to step back and realize that this person on the internet from a thousand miles away has no bearing on my life. And then you can, if I found that from doing that, I can separate myself from the growing you know, hive mind that we have in this country um, and look at things, how they actually are. And I think people should do that more often. Yeah. It's if you're a stats guy, it's kind of a bad time to be alive because it's like the likes and the views and the clicks, that's everything. You know, if Mm -hmm. you want to have value and you're looking for some type of concrete system to place or rank yourself, that's it. You know, it's likes, it's views, it's clicks, it's impression, it's uh, Mm -hmm. watch time, it's whatever, you know, and if you, if your internal value and your belief in yourself comes from that, like I said, it's a bad time to be alive. For real. Like it, if you're able to sustain yourself to live a life, to do the things that you want to do and be around the people that you want to be around and you're doing all that, why does it matter what those other people say about you? Right. A, a couple dislikes can send someone into a downward spiral for no mm-hmm. reason. Like this random person who I won't even know who they are doesn't like this one thing that I did. My world is ending. And yeah. it's just, I don't, I've never gotten that need like that to that urge that people feel um, to be involved in social media. Like there was a brief period in time where I was a recognizable member of a fairly large Facebook group and I hated it. <laughs> I don't see why anybody would ever want anything related to social media fame or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of work to maintain. It is very little recognition and there is no pay unless people are like, you can sell our products, which at that point, like that's not a meaningful way to live. Mm-hmm. You're just pushing someone else's stuff. Like why, why do you want that? I just never understood social media. And now it's become like the, the focus of our entire society and culture. Mm-hmm. And I don't like it. Yeah. The, uh, the latest, I don't know if you're, it sounds like you're not, but I don't know if you're into like the Twitter drama and things like that, but there's the whole deal of there's a blue check mark, but now because people deserve power and people deserve the ability to be official, you can buy the check mark. So it's like, oh, pay $8 and you get a blue check mark. But now yeah, instead that. of doing that, now there's also like a silver check mark that gets awarded to important people. So it kind of negates the whole thing. Yeah. But 
it, it's a status symbol, right? Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, you know, Elon Musk is like he originally wanted to charge twenty bucks for it, and they <laughs> they told him that was outrageous, and he was like eight dollars, and they're like, I can do eight dollars, <laughs> but like that that tiny mark means the world, right? It, it's mm-hmm. it's just bringing back social uh, classes from past generations in new ways. And Mm -hmm. like all those ever did was create infighting and keep people at each other's throats and separated. And at a time of division, like we're at now, like that's what they want. And Mm -hmm. it's so much potential for it to be a propaganda platform. I mean, those check marks, Oh, well, well, they're at, they're recognizable people. Obviously what they say must be true. And then from there, like you're in a, a world of, you know, troubles. So it's weird for me because I mean, I don't, I don't like to normally go into politics too much, but I will say, I will comment on the fact that the past 10 to 20 years or so, it seems like we're trending more and more toward no middle class. You know, you're either mm-hmm. really, really low or you're really, really high and there's not very much in the middle. And it bugs me because this whole Twitter thing is just another piece and tool of that mechanism where it's like, mm-hmm. you're either important or you're not. And everybody gets to fall in one of those camps. And, you know, if that's how you define your, your value and your worth, then you're kind of out of luck unless you get lucky because a lot of times being an influencer and having success involves a lot of luck. Mm-hmm. And like, you've got people uh, on the lower end of society that are mad at the people on the upper end and people on the upper end that look down on the people on the lower end. And they're all just people trying to live their lives from, you know, one day to the next, but mm-hmm. it's, it's just, I don't, I don't like the fact that it breeds a sense of us against them, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, there's, you can, a house divided against itself, itself shall not stand. Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, so. no, it's, it's crazy. And it's, it's, like you said, it's sort of a play to separate people further. And then you're either conservative or you're liberal or you're a Democrat or you're Republican. Like you're, everybody's in a box and there's not very much in between unless you're just irrelevant. You know, if you Mm -hmm. vote the green party, you're wasting your vote. What's the point kind of thing. Yeah. Well, like it doesn't really matter at this point, a two party system is going to be what we have. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, they're just opposite ends of the same points that all end up doing the same things anyway. So they're going to do what they want to do. Just, as, as long as there's a two party system, you can't have like a true democracy, you know, yeah. you, there are more than two viewpoints on anything and everybody's not going to agree on this side or that side. So mm-hmm. a good portion of the people get left out. I feel like that's why a lot of people don't vote to begin with was, you know, what's the point? You know, there's a, there's this option, this option, and they're the same option. Uh, it was, uh, you ever heard of the comedian Bill Hicks? Name sounds familiar. I don't know that I've seen okay. anything though. So he was a comedian in the late eighties, early nineties, and he was so far ahead of his time. That he never reached levels of popularity that he should have. But today, like comedians love Hicks for the, the sheer audacity to call out things as he saw them. Right. And he had this one bit where he was talking about, you know, elections and stuff. And he was like, uh, well, the puppet on the left says this is right. Well, the puppet on the right says that this is right. But then you look (laughs) in the middle and it's one guy holding both puppets. (laughs) So like it's that whole situation. Like there it's, if there's just two options, 
Yeah. They both lead to the same thing in this case. There's all these other people that don't vote. So you've got ones that are going to vote this way, ones that are going to vote that way, split it down the middle. So it's to the point now where they can accurately predict who's going to win this and that just because of you got two options and we know these many people don't like that option. <laughs> so at that point, like you can, you can manipulate that. If people are so easily manipulated that they don't even realize it. <laughs> yeah. And it, it almost, it ties in really nicely. I was thinking about this while you were talking, but it ties in really nicely to the religion topic that we were talking about earlier. Cause it's like, at least where we're from and the kind of sort of religious umbrella that we were mm -hmm. under it's very black and white. Like you're you're in the group and you're cool and you're doing the right stuff or you're out of the group and we're going to judge you and critique you and ostracize or ostracize you. And it's just, you know, it's, it's really, it deters people from pursuing it and mm -hmm. from at least exploring it or giving it a chance because, you know, if you look a certain way or you act a certain way or you do certain activities, you're just out of the club. And then, and that's kind of it. Um, so I can totally understand how, there are so many people who just hate it because they don't want to be kicked out of the club, you know, just for how they look. I I've never felt more alone in my life than I have on church trips mm -hmm. at like major church conferences and stuff. You know, you've got all these people there that are together, right? They've got this sense of bonding over their thoughts and views on this one thing. And I'm there unable to accept those views. And like they, they would tell you, they would tell you like, all it takes is that you accept Jesus in your heart and then you're going to feel this and you're going to feel this and you're going to feel this. And then you do that and you never feel any of those things. <laughs> and at that point they look at you differently. Mm -hmm. They're like, Oh, well, he's not a real Christian at that point. And I'm, I'm over here doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing all this. And at the same time, I don't feel what I'm supposed to feel based on, you know, all these anecdotes and what other people feel. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't feel, you know, a deity in this. I feel a bunch of people that have tricked themselves into coming together and maintaining themselves as a family under this idea that someone created I feel like religion can be a powerful thing because everybody has some form of, you know, spirituality to them to where they feel things on a spiritual level or what mm -hmm. they perceive to be a spiritual level. And I don't want to discredit those experiences because they are valid experiences and I had them myself. But at the same time, how much is it that this experience is actually what I am being told? How much is it that there are a thousand people here in a similar trance-like state that are imparting that on me by you know sheer proximity to the situation, right? Mm -hmm. And which of these feelings that I'm feeling are actually mine and which of them are other people's that I am just passively picking up on, right? Because yeah. all those experiences that I had, not one of them was when I was alone, not one of them was when I was doing the things that I was supposed to do, praying, reading my Bible, et cetera. It was always when I was in a large group of people that were together there for one part one purpose and feeling the same emotions, whether intentionally or just by pro I am by proxy. And I felt the same things that I felt at those church conferences to a stronger degree at music concerts. 
where it's the same thing. It's a large group of people joined in one place for the same activity, singing the same songs all together in unison. And you Mm -hmm. feel that same spirituality that I felt in church amongst a bunch of sinners, as they would put it. So (laughs) I I feel like it's just a human need for, to be a part of something. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's so much psychology that goes into like how music is in a church. And we would have, when I went to the church I used to go to, like we would have meetings where we would analyze how other worship teams and the, the way that they would stack sounds would influence the crowd itself. So like we were basically learning how to manipulate people with music <laughs> to get the desired outcome when the preacher came up there. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just, just too much. Like at that point, it's no longer about this deity that these scriptures are written about. It's about the feeling that people are chasing at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I, that was the the one thing that made me finally leave. You know, there's I don't want to I, I will refrain from saying specifically the name because, you know, who knows who will end up watching this. But out of, based out of Charlotte, there's a very specific mega church. That when I say mega church in Charlotte, most people are going to immediately know what it is. But mm-hmm. um, I heard at one point that the preacher um, not only is like multimillionaire because it's a mega church with all these different branches, but also I heard at some point, I don't know how true this is, but that whenever he walks into these meetings, everyone stands up for him. And I'm like, I can believe it. I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel very good. Like I, I if I'm coming here to worship God or Jesus or whatever, Mm. Certainly not going to be worshiping the preacher. In fact, he might be the last person that I care, you know, to acknowledge because I've said it before, but I don't know that pastors and preachers are great conduits to God. I feel like they can be very disruptive. I don't Mm. know that they, I mean, I think they do a lot of really important and good things, but I think that they can be very disruptive and problematic. Um, And that just doesn't sit very well, you know, that someone would Mm. stand up for me if I walk in the room. And like, I've met a lot of preachers that I 100% believe are in it for the right reasons and fully believe mm-hmm. what they're in it for. And those people I have no problem with and I commend. But like you said, mega churches and things like that, it's about, it's about views. It's about likes. It's about creating that sense of community and othering others. And mm-hmm. even in local churches, you have that othering, especially around here. Like you mentioned, you know, we all experienced it at some point, mm-hmm. but uh, I, it's very rare that I find a church or anything that I actually believe that the people inside are genuine about, about what they believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time it, it just seems like a social act that people partake in because it's expected of them. Mm-hmm. I'll say that whenever I first moved to Charlotte, um, I tried a couple dozen churches, like just going each week to different churches to try to find a good fit, something that felt mm-hmm. very good, um, genuine people, good experiences. And it took, you know, six, eight months to find a church that had that kind of experience. And then even now, whenever I have the opportunity to visit a different church from the one that uh, my wife and I attend, doesn't, I mean, it's just the one place that feels good mm-hmm. amongst a sea of so many places that feel very bad, you know, and, yeah. and maybe that's a little bit of personal bias, I'm sure. And it's some, it's me looking for something for me, mm-hmm. but as devout as I've been and as closely I've tied myself to my faith, it seems like there should be more out there for people to just kind of plug and play, like walk into this church and you're set, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And like for me, I, I did the same thing. Like I went to countless different churches. I tried to find good fits and I found a couple that worked for a while. But after a while, yeah, like I would always be on the like the music side of things. So I would always see the 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 workings behind everything. And mm-hmm. I would get to know the pastor. And nine times out of ten, the pastor would not be who they presented themselves to be. Um and that's that's one thing I can say about the the last church I went to. Uh, the pastor was exactly who he presented himself to be, but who he presented himself to be was a businessman who just <laughs> wanted to preach. And so yeah. that's how, that's how he ran the church. He ran it as a businessman who had to go preach at this time. Right. I, and at least he was being honest about who he was, you know? Yeah. And like the people in the churches, most of them are good people. Most of them are there because you know, they have devoted their life to this and that's what they want to do. And I have no problem with those people, but I've also seen like the people behind the scenes that are using it to make money or skim off the top or they're building, uh, they're there strictly to build social status. Mm-hmm. And those people always like push me away from any type of organized religion and, away from an organized religion, I have trouble believing in anything like that because there's no proof. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm at that weird point where, you know, I still sometimes get these flashbacks from my childhood and I'll be like, Oh no, I'm going to hell. And then like five (laughs) minutes later, I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm fine. (laughs) So I want to, I want to give you some time um, because the sort of the full circle moment, I guess, whenever we reached out and, and talked about doing mm-hmm. this, um, learned that you are, you became a teacher, which mm-hmm. really took me back to high school because I remember you saying you wanted to teach. And so, you know, your path <clears throat> to getting there might've been a little bit longer, but you ultimately reached that goal. So I wanted to give you a chance to talk about that journey and, mm-hmm. and what it was like and what it took to kind of align your life where you could do that. Well, uh, yeah. When I was in high school, uh, like I said, my grandma was a teacher and I, I, I was always around teachers. I always got along better with adults than I did other kids. Right. That, that's always been something about me is I've always gotten along with older people because I felt like I, I could learn something from them. And most people my age, I couldn't learn anything from. So uh, I would always seek out those people and try to learn what I could. Even all the way through college, I was best friends with the chair of the English department. I would go sit in her office like one or two times a day for uh, 10, 20 minutes a time, just talking to her. And then she would stay late at work and we'd just sit there and talk. Uh, <laughs> so there was always something else I could learn if I just engaged with someone who knew more than me. And there came to a point where I wanted to express that to other people, right? I wanted to give the information I had received back in some way. In high school, I was like, you know, being like a high school teacher or something, that would be, that that would be great. And after I graduated, instead of going to do that, uh, my grandparents talked me into working in the local plant to make some money. And I didn't go to college. I just went into trades and did that. Uh, I hated every minute of it. And I felt like I was losing IQ points every day that I was, in. <laughs> whether it was the oil smell or the work, I'm not sure, but I just, I felt like I was getting dumber and losing potential at the longer I stayed there. And I stayed for four years. Um, and when I got out, 
it was too late for me to apply for college that year. And I had it in my mind that I had to start in August. So I spent the next year doing odd jobs and stuff and teaching part-time some of those hands-on mechanics classes and stuff at the local technical college. Um, and after that, I it was teaching, but it was not what I wanted to be teaching. You know, like I was still passing on that information and trying to help other people, but it wasn't anywhere near what I wanted to do. So uh, I left there and I went back to, or went to Francis Marion for the first time um, and fell in love with it immediately. And I had it in my mind that I was going to graduate and I was going to go to Japan and teach English, right? That whole disappearing in Japan thing, right? <laughs> I was like, this is my opportunity. This is my, this is my ticket out of here. I'm going to go to Japan. I'm going to teach English for a couple of years and then maybe I'll just move to Japan, you know, start over. Yeah. And around that time, like my dad started to get sick. He got a uh, COPD and emphysema from smoking all of his life. And it just, he refused to do what the doctor told him and his health started to drop. And I was like, Oh, I'm just going to stay around here. So I was still in college and I, my grandmother died of COVID, right? All, all the COVID stuff started and mm -hmm. I was staying with them so I could afford to go to school. Um, and after that, my grandpa, he was like, you can stay here, but like, I won't be able to afford internet and all this stuff. And I needed internet for school. So I had to leave my grandparents' house and go stay with my dad, which worked out because him and his wife were getting divorced. They had just separated and, uh, he needed somebody there with him for his health. So I moved in with him and I kind of just, I had this idea that I wanted to teach college, right? I wanted to go through get my master's and then my PhD and be an English professor. And then I started watching the job market for that. And it just, the jobs went from, it was like the first year I checked, it was like 1800 jobs for us, uh, for, uh English professors mm -hmm. specifically in English. The next year there was like 600. The year after that, there was less than three. And I was like, well, that, this is not a viable option. Like there's no way I can spend all this time and all this money to go get, my PhD and then not be guaranteed a job, right? It's too much of my life wasted. So I, I didn't worry about it. And I was like, Oh, I'll just, I'll find something when I get out of school. I'm, I'm not worried about it. And through that whole time with COVID, you know, I had to really separate myself from the world because of my dad's health. If he would have got COVID, there's no way he would have survived it. So I kind of went back to that whole, you know, being alone, hanging out, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life mode that I was in all through childhood. And <clears throat> I was supposed to graduate May 7th this year. And on April 14th, my dad passed away three weeks before I was supposed to graduate. And that was tough. You know, I, I got, I had to take care of him all those times and I was constantly watching him deteriorate day by day, getting worse and worse until he finally passed just short of watching me walk across that stage and get my diploma. So like that was really tough going into the summer. And in the summer, I completely like separated myself from everything. I started working at my buddy's restaurant to help him keep it afloat. And I was like, this is my life now, right? Uh, I'm not going to use my degree right now. I'm just going to see if I can help this guy succeed. And 
I worked and worked and worked there and I was barely making bills, you know, just barely getting by. And I get a call from Richmond County School District and they were like, hey, come work with us. And I was like, okay, I'll go for the interview, right? I don't know if I'm going to do it, (laughs) but I really need the money right now. And so I'll, I'll go give it a shot. Mm-hmm. So I went to the interview and they offered me social studies instead of English. And immediately I was like, this is a terrible idea. I don't know enough about history. I'm not doing this. <clears throat> and after talking with everybody there, I was like, yeah, I can do it. Right. I can make sure this works. And I went home and I was like, I'm not doing this for days. I was like, I'm not doing this. I would call my sister and talk to her for hours. I'm like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I have the the knowledge I need. I don't think I know what I'm doing well enough to succeed. And at that point, if I can't do it, well, I'm just not going to do it at all. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then they called me and told me I had the job. And I was like, oh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I got to try to do it, you know? Yeah. So uh, I showed up first day and I immediately fell in love with it. Like I never thought I would. I thought I was, I always said I w- would be a teacher because I could be mean to the children and make them do work. Like my teachers did to me. Uh, and then I finally become a teacher. And I'm like, as soon as I step in there that first day and the first child comes into the room and starts what they're doing. And then they start coming up to me wondering who I am and why I'm there. <laughs> and I see the, the look on their face, that surprise of, Oh, I don't know this person. I was like, that was my face. <laughs> That was me in school. Um, So I was like, oh, all these kids are just like I was. Okay. I could do this. And I was like, I can actually, you know, help them in this situation. There's something I can do that can benefit these kids' lives. And at Mm -hmm. that point, I was like, all right, well, no matter how hard it gets, I'm coming back tomorrow. And the first (laughs) day was pretty rough. And I came back the next day and I walk in and the person I was working with is like, oh, my God, I'm surprised you came back. (laughs) <laughs> but I did. I came back and I've just finished my first week and I, every day I've enjoyed it more than the last, even when it gets difficult. I'm just like, I got this. I can do this. Right. Mm-hmm. I can push on through and I can make this work. You're, you definitely come across um, as a lifelong learner because you love answers and you love understanding, but you also come across as a lifelong teacher, right? Because you know, if you value the answers that much, then all of those little kids, you know, you want them to value mm-hmm. the answers just as much. Definitely yeah. makes sense. And the hard part is going to be making them care about the information. Yeah. Especially yeah. since you're doing social studies when you wanted to do English. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a different, it's not the escapism, right. That I was, that drew me to English. Um, mm-hmm. There's none of that in social studies. Yeah. There's cold, hard facts about what happened and some (laughs) uh, different interpretations of the meanings of things and Mm -hmm. how certain things played out. Right. There's not as many questions to be discovered in U.S. history. (laughs) Most of it's pretty set. Uh, So, like, it's not my wheelhouse but it's information, which I love information and I do enjoy learning about history. And mm-hmm. at that point I take my love of information, my love of learning information and the desire to give that information to someone else. And I think I'm going to be all right. 
Yeah, I, I think I, you're, I think you're going to do really well. I think that yeah. people are going to be drawn to you. You know, I ran from teaching. Uh, I, I could have applied to be a teacher earlier and I was like, I'm not doing it. I am not doing it. But like they reached out to me and they were like, well, just come interview with us. And I was like, I could do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was just like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. And still to this moment, it's a little overwhelming because mm-hmm. I'm just like, this is a whole lot. And it's new and it's different. But here's something for you. Uh, I was telling my sister this last night, the woman that they put me with, um, right. They put me with a substitute teacher for the first three days. She was, uh, she worked as a teacher in elementary school for like 30 years. And then she retired. And after a few years, she came back to substitute teach. Hmm. And I walk in the first day and she's there. And, uh, she immediately reminds me of my grandmother. Right. Not the, not the bad parts, but just the good parts. Right. She's, mm-hmm. she's warm and loving. Like my grandmother was, they speak similarly. They even had a uh, similar facial structure. It was just, it was like I was working with my grandmother for the first week of my new job. Mm-hmm. And, uh, on the third day she asked me how I was liking it. And I, I told her, I was like, yeah, it's a little much, but, I think I'm going to do well at it. Right. I've, I've determined that I'm going to put in what I need to, to become the best teacher I can. This mm-hmm. whole week I spent every night home, like learning how to be a better teacher. I was reading books, watching YouTube videos, taking notes, everything I could think of to you know, learn more in that time period. And she was looking at my notes and stuff. And she was like, you know, I think you were born to do this. She's like, I don't know if this is the age group for you, She's like, you're doing really well with them. And it might be, but you, I know you said you want to do high school, but regardless, I think you were born to be a teacher. And she's like, mm-hmm. I think you're going to do fine. And then that, that's what I'm holding on to. If, if mm-hmm. I can, if I can keep doing fine, then it'll be okay. <laughs> um, so I want to, before we kind of transition into the end of the conversation, I do want to take some time because as I, we discussed a little bit before recording that mm-hmm. I was most excited about talking about really weird stuff like aliens and simulation theory and universal origins. So mm-hmm. I want to carve out a section for that because that's stuff that I love. And I think, but there aren't that many people that want to talk about it. Um, so what, what is your, what is your like number one, theory on how everything works and what's out there. My number one theory, I don't know. I'm, I'm torn, right? Mm-hmm. I 100% believe that all of these UAP sightings and stuff that we've been seeing are real, not <laughs> ours. And we don't know what they are. <laughs> that that's where I'm at. I, I want to know what they are and I don't know yet. So I've come up yeah. with, uh, three options, right? That I think are viable (laughs) options. One, they are aliens from another planet. Mm -hmm. That's probably my least favorite option. Number two, uh, that they are interdimensional beings (laughs) that are visiting for some reason. And three, that they are the leaders of our simulation coming back to check on us and make sure we haven't (laughs) killed ourselves yet. (laughs) <laughs> so i don't know so that's it. what do you think about area 51 do you think that there's actually like some some stuff out there that you know the government just doesn't want us to know 
You ever uh, heard of Bob Lazar? I think I have, yeah. Bob Lazar claims that he worked at a place called S4, which was uh, next to Area 51 um, in the same part of Nevada. Mm-hmm. And he claims that while working there, he his job was uh, advanced propulsion, and he was there to back engineer alien spacecraft. And he described like the way they flew, how they would, it seemed like they were just kind of tumbling through space, which is very similar to what we're seeing in those, uh, like the gimbal and the go fast videos that we've seen. Um, and all these different things that he said were possible, right? And he claimed that the, the ships were powered by an element called element 115. And it would, if we discovered it, it would be unstable, but he had a, in the lab, they had a stable version of it. And like 20 years later, they discovered element 115 and it was highly unstable when they found it. But theoretically they can create a stable version. They just don't know exactly how to do it yet. Mm -hmm. Um, He claims that he has part of that element that he stole from the lab. And uh, he's constantly being raided by the FBI and all these different people. And they'll say that it's in relation to, you know, top secret information, but that's all you ever get. So he's involved in something. We don't know <laughs> if he's being accurate, um, but he, he has all this knowledge. He's been in the, the papers for creating his own like jet vehicles. He strapped a jet engine to a Honda one time. He was in the paper mm. for that. He worked at uh, Los Alamos labs, supposedly. Uh, he was supposed to, supposedly he went to MIT and to Caltech, um, but none of his, uh, none of his education information checks out. They have, they say they have no, no, like no clue who he is. They've never heard of him. He just doesn't exist. Uh, but he's listed in the Los Alamos labs employee handbook for the years. He claims he worked there with his home address and phone number in the book. So there's no disputing that he worked there at some point. Uh, and he claims that he was hired on through EG&G, which is a government contractor who has come out and has been uh, proven to have hired people to work at Area 51 and the surrounding areas uh, and all this different stuff. So the, like, there's validity to his claims in some aspects, but not in others. So a lot of people discredit him as being not uh, really who he says he was. Mm. But if you ever watch any body language stuff about him, he is unflinching. He tells the story like he's apprehensive to tell it like it was a bad memory. Right. Mm. That's what everybody says about him. It's like he's recounting a bad memory that he doesn't want to remember, but he can't forget. Um, he claims that the government has tried multiple attempts on his life over this, (laughs) but he keeps talking about it because as long as he's talking about it, he hopes they can't kill him because it'll look bad on the U S (laughs) government. So he just seems like he's really scared, but trying to get the information out there uh, enough to keep himself alive. Mm. He's never been one to go out and try to make money off of it or anything like that. So it makes me believe that he might be, telling some form of the truth. Right. Yeah. And the way he describes that the, the vehicles, it's like they create an anti-gravity field and they fall through gravity as they're going. Uh, that's exactly what we're seeing in all these, all this footage that comes out. 
you just see like they'll, they'll tilt up on their sides and it's not, you see no propulsion or anything. It's like, they're just moving through space. Like they're falling at a constant rate and you can change directions and stuff because like if they're creating their own gravity field, it makes sense. Um, it would also give them the ability to be transmedium like we're seeing where they can fly in space, air and underwater, which is fascinating because those are completely different ways to travel that require completely different systems to maneuver. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you create an anti-gravity field, then you bypass all of those requirements. Uh, and I, I find Bob Lazar's story in, com in combination with the videos that we've seen to be not quite fully convincing, but enough to make me want to know more. Right. <laughs> um, and at the same time, if what if they're interdimensional species, right. Or interdimensional beings and they're moving in another dimension and just popping through ours. That would mm -hmm. also explain a lot of it too, because they wouldn't be held to our sense of gravity and stuff. Uh, they're on a different dimension operating under different laws. So that's always a possibility. So it's, I, I don't know what, what they are, but I, we have from the, the report that the department of defense gave and all that about the, the UAPs, we know that there's something out there. The government admits there's something out there and that they don't know what it is. My, um, so I've always maintained that my, my faith and my belief in the creator is, is my number one and what I'm not going to deter from. However, I will say that if someone could convince me 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no God, there is no creator and there was no higher power at the beginning, mm -hmm. simulation would be my number two. And mm -hmm. it's because it just makes too much sense. It's the most appealing. And there was a podcast episode I listened to a long time ago. It's one of my favorite things to go back and listen to. But one of my favorite creators made a comment that really sunk in and has been with me ever since. And he was like, you know, if we have the ability to simulate life, if we can create a simulation that works and runs and, you know, really operates the way that it, it's supposed to, mm -hmm. then why could that not have happened, you know, outside of us and we be the simulation and we be the NPCs, you know, exactly. and you have your celebrities, your artists, your people who are the protagonist of the simulation. And then you have us, which are just the NPCs. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, you know, if I didn't believe what I already believe, then that would be really appealing. That sounds pretty good to me. Mm -hmm. And like the simulation theory is very interesting because like you have the biggest argument that I've seen against it is that it's impossible because um, there's no way that you could represent every atom in the universe that accurately, right? Mm. There, the universe has too much uh, in it to where you can't accurately represent it within a simulation but you don't have to have everything active at one time, right? right? We know that light operates differently when it's being observed and when it's not being observed to the point that if you observe uh, a particle of light, it changes its state back to its origin, wherever that origin is from at the moment that you view it. Uh, there was a test they did. I think it was in the seventies where 
they were reading how it was, uh, the light was hitting the sheet of paper. All right. And they were expecting it to be uh, particles. Uh, they shot it through and they looked at it. They put a, like a electronic observer in there to see it. And it came up as an interference wave. So they took the observer away and it was a particle again. Hmm. They put the observer back in there, but they unplugged it <laughs> and it was an interference wave. Hmm. So it's like things in the universe are changing. If people can see them, act, like actively see them, or if it thinks that it is being observed. And if it doesn't think it's being observed, it's running off of a different set of rules, just like a computer program. There are also all these weird instances that are observable, which I know you being a person who cares about facts and answers, observable is important. But, mm -hmm. for example, the Bermuda Triangle being this kind of strange phenomenon where things disappear or like false holes in the ground where people just kind of vanish. That's observable. There's video that shows some of that stuff happening. Mm -hmm. Um and a lot of times people who are more religious or spiritual will accredit some of that stuff to faith and, and, you know, higher power and that kind of thing. But then there are other people scientifically who will try to recreate it or explain it. And they'll sort of give credit to whatever's happening that we don't understand. There's uncanny Valley stuff. There's just so much stuff like lizard people, you know, some of it's kind of ridiculous, but there's too much for there not to be some kind of underlying thing. Um, it's just that we might not ever be close enough to know what that underlying thing is. Well, we don't know how vast parts of the universe functions. You know? we, mm -hmm. we can, we have to observe things from where we are to be able to tell how they are. And a lot of things are too far away to see, but the things that are up close, we think we know what they are, but we science has shown that our, our senses only pick up a fraction of what's actually here. What, mm -hmm. what is around us? We don't see most of it. There's a lot of, uh, you know, parts of light, infrared light stuff that our eyes can't see. So if you think about it, like a simulation doesn't have to run all that stuff unless it's actively being viewed. Yeah. You know? Video games don't well, do that. Why would, why would a simulation do that? There was uh, something I, I learned from Stephen Hawking's uh, book, Theory of Everything or... Mm -hmm. um, the movie was called theory of everything, but I, I also listened to the audio book um, and I've it really it. stuck it's with good. me. And I, I wrote a, sorry. I said, I've read it. It's good. Yeah. So it's something stuck with me um, that I mentioned in a blog post one time that I did, which was when a star explodes, what we see happening, the actual explosion of the star happened like in the past, mm -hmm. like what we're seeing is not happening in real time because it's so far away from us that when we see it, you know, we're seeing something that happened, you know, say minutes or hours prior, um, which is really weird because that just throws everything we understand about time kind of for a loop. You know, that things that are happening, time is this factor that's not really measurable. It's mm -hmm. kind of measurable and we kind of have a sense of how it works. But really, it's extremely um, subjective, you know, and that's that's something that kind of floats into that theory, I think, too, where. You know, as far as time is concerned, that time is kind of its own operator mm -hmm. that operates at different levels in different places. Well, like I was telling you about that the experiment where they were observing the particle of light. They were they tried it with starlight, right? Mm -hmm. From uh, it was. I can't remember how far away it was, but it was decently far. And they measured it when it hit the paper and it hit as particles. 
they measured it when it hit the paper with a, an observer and it was an interference wave like they would mm. expect. Right. But that was starlight said it's I said it's uh all of its qualities and everything were set when it was emitted from the star millions of light years away. <laughs> yeah. But as we're observing it, it's actively changing its state from the origin. So time is irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was getting at. Like time itself, you can't, you almost mm -hmm. can't plug it into the equation. You almost have to look at everything outside of it. And, you know, I understand that simulation theory and, and that kind of thing is sort of hard to grasp and far fetched and, and really something to play with more than something to plug in as a mm -hmm. scientific fact. But we all want to explain things and we all want an answer for the way things work. And to, more often than not, it kind of fits pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nick Bostrom and his uh, uh, simulation argument. Have you ever looked into that? Mm -mm. Uh, let me pull it up right quick so I can read it to you. Um, he has three. There are three parts of the argument. Okay. So the simulation argument breaks down as the fraction of human level civilizations that reach a post-human stage that is one capable of running high fidelity ancestor simulations is very close to zero or the fraction of post-human civilizations that are interested in running simulations of their uh, evolutionary history or variations thereof is very close to zero or the fraction of all people with our kind of experiences that are living in a simulation is very close to one. <laughs> so either no one has ever decided that they want to do a simulation, a very uh, small group of them, which could still be millions because you're looking at all the possible civilizations in the universe, mm -hmm. uh, decided that that was a bad idea, right? Or we are definitely living in a simulation because there are people that are more advanced than us in the universe based on sheer numbers and the age of our uh, planet and our civilization, and that they have decided to create simulations and we are definitely one of them. <laughs> so, like, it's a little out there, but I, I get his point, right? So, yeah, if we're going to reach a point in our civilization where we will create simulations, then it's only expected and right that they would create multiple simulations of multiple different things. And at mm -hmm. that point, the probability of us being in the original simulation line is very close to zero. Yeah. It's just, so it's a scary thought, especially when you see things like the deja vu and stuff like that. And your mind is just mm. like, Oh, this, this is familiar. And there's that misfire. Right. I've always thought that that was like the computer resetting itself for a split second, <laughs> picking back up at the last save state. And you're like, Oh, Something's different. Well, there's when you when you start factoring in consciousness mm -hmm. and you know different aspects of like psychotherapy and and just there's a whole new world to kind of where you can plug these ideas in. But like dream sequences where you sort of are aware that something happened and you remember part of it and then it actually happens or something like you're saying deja vu. You know, there's not. I mean, the answer is there is no answer. So. Mm -hmm what can we do to, you know, provide some context and, and fill in the blank there. And this kind of works. Like what if it's just a reset? What if it's just an error? What if it's just our coding and programming not functioning correctly? 
Mm-hmm. You know, what if everything's already laid out from beginning to end and we're just getting these little glimpses along the way um, that are mistakes, you know? Yeah. So it is fascinating. You know, I, I, like I said, I can't say that I buy in or believe it, but I kind of like to, if my first fallback didn't work, my first initial belief didn't work, I would definitely fall back to it and explore it further because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it does fascinate me and it explains a lot of things that don't have those answers. Yeah. And like, there's no way that we can know because we are not technologically advanced to create our own simulation, uh, to even know if it's possible to do so. But if by now we're already trying to rationalize whether this is possible, someone in the future is going to figure out a way to make it possible because that's just the (laughs) nature of humans. If somebody has the idea, someone else is going to figure out how to do it. Uh, somewhere down the line. Like we've had people that have described in science, uh, they described, you know, experiments they would have liked to have done, but science wasn't up to par yet. And then when it was, somebody was like, hey, let let me do that experiment. So I guarantee (laughs) you at some point in our timeline, someone's going to make a simulation (laughs) just because there's so much interest in it now. Right. There's people well, we have the, we have the Sims. We have the Sims. So like, you know, well. there are some situations where we've <laughs> kind of done it, you know, like they're yeah. they're not real people that are living and breathing, but they're there. They exist. Mm-hmm. They're characters and they're ones and zeros. But yeah. they're moving. They're living. They do things. It's kind of weird. And AI and video games, you know, like you've yeah. got people that wander around the city all day aimlessly. That's what they do. That's their lot in life <laughs> is to wander aimlessly. Uh but even, you know, think about today, like the, how vast video game technology has grown. Uh, mm-hmm. Like you can create things that are almost indistinguishable from real life. Mm-hmm. And computing power doubles every 18 months is that's, that's the rule. Yeah. It's been proven time and time and again, every 18 months, the computer power, uh, computing power doubles. So how many more cycles do we need before we can create that? before we can have chips that can power that graphics cards that can push that we already have graphics cards now like the i don't know if you've looked at them but the like the gtx 4090 mm-hmm. it's so large yeah. that it has to stay outside of your tower you can't fit it yeah. in any computer tower and they are melting they are so powerful that you they have to have their own cooling system and if anything tweaks with the cooling system they melt themselves <laughs> <laughs> So, like, our technology is growing faster than we can really keep up with. So, at what point do we reach that either we've got, we realize that this is something that we can never do, or that we realize it's inevitable, and then it really becomes a question of, have we done this before? Has, yeah. Has humanity gone down this path at some point? Whether, you know, even if it's not humanity, even if it's another culture, like, someone, are we the simulation of someone else. And like, we've got reached the point where the simulation has wrapped back around to itself. You know, I, um, I have a VR headset, Oculus headset, and I, I like a lot of augmented reality stuff. It's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating, mostly for fitness games, but I do play a couple of fun things in there and augmented reality on our phones. And I do GIS for a living. So I build online mapping systems and online maps and things like that. And we're talking about an augmented reality tool right now for just um, pushing our structures, our polylines and everything where you can see them kind of in the real world. Um, And it's happening fast. Like that stuff's popped up over the past three to four years. 
and I can't imagine 10 years from now how accurate it's going to be to real life. Yeah. And like at that point, you really have to ask yourself, like, what is real and what isn't? (laughs) At some point, the human brain is going to have problems trying to process that. And I think we're already seeing that a little bit in society today. Think about the Mm -hmm. rise in, uh, you know, mental disorders and stuff, depression, anxiety. Like the world around us is growing too fast, in, in my view, for our minds to handle it. Right. Life is changing too quickly for us to adapt to it at this point. So yeah, like it, we're seeing problems with it already. And I just feel like they're going to be exacerbated as time goes on. You know, like I don't, I don't see there's an off ramp for us. It's, it's either going to go really well or really poorly, depending on how well we adapt. Are we really ready for the Neuralink? <laughs> that is terrifying. Okay. Yeah. That that's, is... I mean, that's what, that's kind of what I describe it when I talk mm-hmm. about, it. I'm like, it's, it's kind of scary. Like I, I don't want, I can already contact somebody in another country in another time zone and have my full like body and face and everything right in front of them. I don't want to be able to send them messages with my mind. No, thank you. <laughs> right. And like that, that's so far from the human experience to this date. Like, where do we go from that? How yeah. does that affect the rest of our lives? You know, <laughs> How, how many problems are we going to have because that stuff's uh, short circuits and uh, they send the wrong message to the wrong person or our <laughs> thoughts get projected into someone else's mind? Like, that's going to be bad for everyone because everybody has those intrusive thoughts that they don't want. And if the neural links is just like, hey, there's another user right there. This is shareable <laughs> data. Send. <laughs> Well, it's also because, you know, we're going to have the Neuralink kind of around the same time or the same decade where we get people sort of transmitting their consciousness into chips and stuff to like mm-hmm. live in infinitely. So like just think about your your loved one is now in a computer on a on a hard drive and then all of a sudden the hard drive dies and then they're really gone. It's not like a death where you had cancer or you had heart disease and we had a mourning process and a funeral. Nope. You just wake up and the hard drive's dead and they're gone. Now, would that be considered murder? Well, if you destroyed it, (laughs) (laughs) it's like there are so many moral implications that I don't want to, I don't want to solve. That's, it's just, it's frightening. (laughs) It is terrifying. And, you know, we, art is all about what it is to be human, right? Like that's the point of art is to explore what it means to be a human and how to better yourself going further. But what is the purpose of art if there is no humanity, right? So if mm-hmm. we're all simulations and we are, we're running, you know, predestined code, right? It's pre-designed, pre-written, and we're just figuring it out as we go. We think that it's our own free will. What is the purpose of art at that point? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not expressing humanity, but expressing just code. It's like AI art today, right? That shit is terrifying. (laughs) You can put on like it makes beautiful art with just a few keywords, right? And a lot of times, it's fairly close to what you were envisioning it was going to be anyway. But it's 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 odd. It's a little off. You look at them and like, oh, that's not really a face, is it? It looks like a face, though. 
<clears throat> yeah, that's that's what I meant when I was talking about Uncanny Valley. Like mm-hmm. these robots that are now hostesses and um, like they work at hotels and they work mm-hmm. at uh, airports and stuff. Don't bring that stuff over here until I'm dead, please, because I don't want to deal with any of that. <laughs> Did you ever play uh, Detroit Being Human? Uh, I've heard of the Being Human games. Isn't that like a series? No, it's just one. Oh, okay, no. You should you should play it. Uh, you play as three separate AI that gain consciousness and break away from the system. And mm. uh, you also play as a detective that works with one of them and he was becoming friends with this one and it the whole game is about you know questioning what it means to be human is it is it something biological or is it just sentience right and i've always found that stuff fascinating and i i don't know the answer to that question right because if an ai can think on its own and make its own rational decisions not based on pre-written code, then what does that, what does that mean? You know, like how does that affect everything else? Do we, do they get the same rights as humans? Like I would assume they would, but you know, science fiction and you know, the way we treat other people that we already know are 100% definitely humans tells me that that's not going to be how it goes. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, man, it's just a weird thought. Uh, on that note, uh, you know, moving into the the last part of the interview, I will leave people terrified and leave people wondering what's going to happen to them when they go to sleep tonight. But right, they can um, feel how I, I felt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I do like to conclude. I have a series of ten questions, and okay. these are all inspired by um, James Lipton, who had a show in the '90s called um, Inside the Actor's Studio. Mm-hmm. I have modified and edited them for content just for the purpose of not being too explicit. So um, I didn't do this in the last episode and a couple people actually said, bring it back because they liked it. So I'm going to do it to you. All right. Um, So really quick, one, two word, one phrase. First thing that pops into your head will be our, our question. Okay. All right. What is your favorite word? My favorite word. Fuck. It's so versatile. I knew somebody would do that eventually. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I don't, it's just so versatile. I can use it in multiple different ways. It combines with anything. It's just the perfect word. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Least favorite word? Taxidermy. <laughs> what a strange word to dislike. <laughs> it, it's just my least favorite. It, it's not exciting in any way, shape, or form. It's rather mm. dead and a little stuffed. What excites you? Music and escapism of any variety. So whether it be books, movies, television, just experiencing something else that I will never experience through visual or written media. What upsets you? Not having ketchup. (laughs) I get at a restaurant and they're like, no ketchup. Like, why are you even open? Right. (laughs) What sound or noise do you love? Thunderstorms. Mm, okay. Yeah, storm storm is pretty common. Any kind of nature sound is, is pretty calming. Like the, the worse it gets, the better I, I enjoy it. There was a hurricane that came through like three years ago, and me and my cousin sat on the uh, front porch of my dad's camper. It was covered, 
and throughout the entire hurricane and listen to music and just listen to the, the sounds of the rain and the wind. It was one of my favorite experiences to this day. Uh, what sound or noise do you hate? Police sirens. Hmm. Yeah. Pretty, um, pretty screechy and just loud. <laughs> mm -hmm. What motivates you to act every day when you wake up? Uh, I don't want to be homeless. Hmm. Right. Just don't want to be on the street. Just don't want to be on the street. Um, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Filmmaker. Uh, I could, I would love to watch one of your movies. That would be fun. Right. Wouldn't be derivative at all. <laughs> no, it would, well, maybe a little bit, but it would overcome that with sheer creativity. <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? Tax accountant. Yeah, Anything math related. Right? I'm terrible at math. Yeah, don't give me, don't number one, don't give me numbers. And number two, don't give me numbers that carry that much weight. <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I mess uh, up my own taxes. I don't need to do anybody else's. <laughs> and lastly, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? We have nachos at the concession stand. <laughs> I mean, I, I always said, and I think I stole this from someone else, and you might be familiar to you, but I always said when I get to heaven, I want to have a room where we can all go in and rewatch history from the beginning, mm -hmm. like a movie. Like, just watch it from the start all the way through to where it ended. That would be kind of cool. Yes, uh, I think that would be fantastic. <laughs> Being able to revisit every point in history. Maybe that's what the aliens are. Yeah, maybe they're watching. <laughs> maybe they're, they're souls departed, come back to visit and see how badly we're messing up. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so just to finish up, you know, I'm going to give you the last word and let you say whatever you want to say. Famous last words on my part. Um, I appreciate your time and the conversation. I appreciate you talking about aliens and simulations and all that fun stuff. Um, we'll definitely have to do a part two at some point and, and go deeper into it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was really fun. And um, shout yourself out, say whatever you want to say, your time, and then we'll kind of cap it there. All right. So uh, to close out, I just want to call up the, the famous words of Mr. George Feeney from Boy Meets World in the final episode. Uh, dream, try, do good. That's all I have to say. That's it. No, no That's social it. media. <laughs> no, I, I, uh, my band does not have any social media currently like we do, but we have put nothing up. So there's no point in putting that up for us to follow, for us to not do anything with. But, uh, if it ever comes up that my band finally gets involved in social media, I will definitely send you the stuff so you can put it up there. All right. Sounds good. Right. Well, thank you again. And uh, I think we're all set. All right. Be good. Mm -hmm.